The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. book of Ephesians, chapter 5, and I want to read um, another part of the text on marriage that we've read for a number of weeks. We're really in a sub-series of our series on Ephesians. We're doing this mini-series on marriage, and uh, this Sunday will be on that theme, and then next Sunday we'll conclude that with a sermon on the issues of divorce and remarriage, and then we'll be continuing and finishing chapter 6 of Ephesians. But reading tonight from Ephesians 5 at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then reading two verses from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Father, we pray for your help as we seek to apply your word to our lives, for those of us who are married to apply it to our marriages, and for those who aren't to yet apply it in the many relationships of life where self-sacrifice is called for. We ask your help, and we look to you in the power of your Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the big news story in Lancaster County this week, as if you haven't been around, was the reappearance of Barbara Heist. This Lidditz woman, a wife and mother of an 8-year-old daughter and 11-year-old son, disappeared on February 8th, 2002. And now 11 years later, a week ago, she reappeared in Florida, going to a local police station to essentially turn herself in in Key West, Florida. Not that she had, at least at that point, been known to be guilty of any crime. She did recently, we find out, break her parole from a recent arrest. But essentially, she was turning herself in to say, I want to reappear again as Barbara Heist. She hadn't used that name for years. And, of course, the whole Lancaster community was riveted by the story. I confess that I read every front-page story. One day there were three front-page stories on that one uh, incident. It was an intriguing story. Everybody, I'm sure, like me, wondering what would make a person take a step like that. 
I mean, it's something that is very difficult for most of us to understand why a, a mom, especially, would leave children and never be in touch with them again for 11 years. Or why she wouldn't be in touch with her parents who were still alive. And during that time, her father died and two of her brothers died. And we just wonder, why would you so step out of life to that degree? We're kind of used to people leaving marriages and leaving children in the normal way of getting divorced and things like that. But at least people stay in touch. And you don't wonder. As people who knew her in the intervening years across the state of Florida and various locations in Florida came forward this week with information as they heard the story, it seems that fundamentally Barbara wanted to live for herself. Now, we don't know the whole story. We don't know all of it. We certainly can't speak authoritatively about it. But it wouldn't be surprising to me if fundamentally self-centeredness was at the root of all of it. Every day across America, hundreds of marriages are shipwrecked on the shoals of selfishness. It's just not usually so mysterious and dramatic as it was in this case. The truth is that marriage, every marriage, calls for deep and daily and long-term self-sacrifice. And so it shouldn't surprise us in a me-centered culture and society where the, the message being trumpeted abroad in every media form possible is fulfill yourself, live for yourself, put a priority on yourself. Very different from the calling Scripture calls in marriage. And marriage is this beautiful relationship instituted by God, a potential source for such amazing and great happiness and joy, a foundation, one of the foundation blocks of marriage and all society. And yet, Scripture says it requires the way of the cross. It requires fundamentally giving up self-interest. We see that in Ephesians, in the verses I read, where twice it talks about this. In verse 28, husbands are called to love their wives as their own bodies. And it says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Reminds me of the verse where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and modern speakers often take that and say, well, first you have to love yourself. Scripture never commands us to love ourselves because Scripture knows we naturally love ourselves. When it's calling us to love others, it says, love others like yourself. That's not a call to love yourself. It's really a call to deny yourself. We love ourselves all too easily. And so husbands are called here to love their wives as themselves. And then later on, it's referred to in verse 33 as well. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Both of those commands are rooted in self-sacrificial giving of self. Paul is just highlighting the particular role and mode that that self-giving registers in the institution of marriage. The way of the cross is required. And so I read from 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about the fact that those who belong to Christ are now called to no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, the whole way of the cross in the Christian life is no longer living for yourself, but for Jesus Christ. 
And so the way of the cross is a Christ-centered, sacrificial, other-oriented lifestyle which seeks the other person's well-being, often at the cost of self. Six times in the Gospels, Jesus commands his disciples to walk as he walked, to take up their cross daily and follow him. One is in Luke 9, 23, and Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Taking up our cross stands at the very entrance to Christian life and experience. You are not converted if you do not take up your cross, if you do not take up the cross of Christ in sincere repentance and faith in Christ, turning to Him from your sinful self, casting upon Him your sins through faith, and repenting, turning away from, really, sinful self, now called to live for Him. It's at the entrance to the Christian life, and then it's at every day in the Christian life afterwards until we finally see Christ in glory. And so Luke records the words, take up his cross daily and follow me. Six times in the Gospels, that's recorded. When Scripture repeats something, it's important. I don't know of hardly anything that's repeated in the Gospels six times. It's fundamental to the Christian life. And we can look at other texts as well. For example, Philippians 2, which introduces the great Scripture passage about Jesus humbling himself. In verse 2, it says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Paul launches into the whole hymn to Christ, to have the mind of Christ who gave himself up. So this is repeated over and over again. A Christian is someone who has come to faith in Christ and now is seeking to live for Christ so that fundamentally we live foremost not for ourselves, but for him who died for us. And then the fruit of that is that spilling over into our relationships with everybody else that we know and that we meet, living for Christ. And then out of that Christ-centered life comes the power to love others in this same Christ-like way. So the way of the cross stands in all of our relationships here in the body of Christ. And we see that in Scripture over and over again. Philippians 2 is about relationships in the church. It also stands over our relationships as parent and children as well. But certainly, it applies to marriage. And really, my sermon tonight is an extended meditation on this theme of no longer loving ourselves first, but loving our spouse as ourself. The Christian marriage to be a picture of Jesus, his bride, and the church. That is how Jesus loved the church. He laid down himself. And that's how the church is to respond to their bridegroom, Christ. And so that picture of Christ in the church is to be the picture of marriage as well. And so we have tonight seven aspects of the way of the cross in marriage. You might think, seven? 
He said, I've been teaching Sunday school class on the book of Revelation. And the number seven stands for completeness. So I figure I'm going to have a complete sermon here tonight, seven points. And uh, they're, they're not going to all be that long. I deal with marriages a lot, and I have a lot to think about, a lot to say about this. So marriage calls us to walk in the way of the cross in regard to seven different points here. The first is this, maintaining and growing in a close relationship in marriage. Maintaining and growing a close relationship. In other words, not letting sin and selfishness create increasing walls in a marriage. This is really fundamental to marriage itself. When a husband and wife are married, they're really called to be best friends. When I meet with couples who are engaged, I ask them, what's their relationship like? And, you know, would, you know, how would they describe it? And often what I'm looking for is them to say something like, well, really, we are best friends. There are lots of other attractions in dating and courtship and so on, but it's very important for couples to really be best friends. It says a lot about their relationship if that's the case and if they're growing in that relationship in a sense. Such a relationship must be actively cultivated. No matter how much a couple is best friends before they get married, marriage changes everything because there's this fundamental commitment and then there are lots of temptations and trials in marriage itself. And so that relationship has to be cultivated and protected from whatever would drive a wedge between a husband and a wife. And there are many things like that that would drive such a wedge. A couple must make time to be together to cultivate that relationship. That may seem obvious, but when you think of our culture and society, one of the characteristic themes of our day and age is busyness, distractedness. There's so much to do. Not only are there jobs to go to and yards to take care of and children to raise, but then there's email and texting and TV and all these other things. Our world is crazy with busyness. It's the air we breathe. And so couples must intentionally make time to be together and cultivate time that is together that they're not both distracted and doing other things. They must seek to talk to each other and listen and understand each other. In fact, 1 Peter 3, 7, the word to husbands in 1 Peter 3 brings up this point when it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, according to knowledge. Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge, in an understanding way. A husband is particularly there exhorted by Peter to seek to be understanding of who his wife is, what her needs are. And he goes on to talk about that as being heirs together of the grace of life. Earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 4, verse 29, we, we heard that verse about our communication with one another where Paul says, let no corrupting talk Come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What a selfless description and definition of edifying talk and speech. That your speech may build up the other, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's the ideal for what speech and marriage should be like. And so, At heart, 
in our relationship as husband and wife, we are not to be guarded or withdrawing or harsh and have up walls, but rather we are to be open to one another and seeking to understand each other. And that's not an easy thing often. It calls for the way of the cross because we are sinners saved by grace and things get in the way. One author has illustrated it has, are we an open book or a shut book? Often in marriage, both partners slowly close the book of their lives and it's not open to their spouse anymore. And this author is saying we need to have open books in our marriages. Secondly, another aspect of the cross is maintaining faithfulness in marriage. This may seem like an obvious point, but maintaining faithfulness or fidelity in marriage is at the heart of what biblical marriage is all about. The Bible celebrates the intimacy that is reserved for marriage itself. You can read Proverbs chapter 5 or read the Song of Songs or look at Malachi 2. All of these texts unashamedly speak of the delight of marital love. The Bible is not ashamed to talk about that. The Bible celebrates that. But Scripture also consistently warns about the dangers and the temptations of infidelity within marriage. Tucker York made the point last week in his sermon that he said, you and your spouse are going to be most beautiful and handsome at your wedding day, and from there on, it's downhill. Everybody laughs at that. Yes, I laugh too. Um, But his whole point was, don't think that uh, things are always going to be this gorgeous, beautiful, great. In other words, we age, we uh, fail, we are weak. And so, if that's the case, the way of the cross registers in marriage by a constant calling from God to keep yourself for your spouse alone. How we need that message in a culture gone wild. In his recent book on holiness, the author Kevin DeYoung, a pastor, a relatively young pastor, makes the point that in our society, almost all of us as Christians are to some degree desensitized to sexual temptation around us. Because it's so much a part of our society, we almost get used to it. And he says, we need to guard our heart and we need to cultivate a right sensitivity and a right fear of that kind of temptation. And so, what does it mean to go the way of the cross in terms of sexual fidelity in marriage? Yes, it means to guard against all unfaithfulness in action and in word and in thought. But positively, it also means to cultivate true affection and true love to continue loving each other when you are no longer so lovely as you once were. Maybe there will be the ravages of ill health or aging. If you live long enough, there certainly will be. But the goal is that true affection would continue, and not just continue, but would enlarge and expand. That you would continue to see each other as beautiful, especially beautiful within, and your love would grow and that you would make every effort to continue to communicate that to one another. Don't we all just see that and marvel when a couple is celebrating their 50th or 60th wedding anniversary, and we see the beauty of that relationship that's been honed over time and by the grace of God 
to see that love is still tender and strong. What a powerful example to the watching world to see a couple like that, which is a testimony to the work of Christ. My third aspect is continuing to graciously love and receive one another as Christ has loved and received us. In Ephesians 5, there's this constant interplay that we see between the example of Christ and what husbands are called to do. We see it in verse 27, Christ, he might, that Christ might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the work of Christ with the church. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And so we think, how has Christ loved the church? Well, we know Christ gave himself up for the church. He laid down his life. He bore our sins for us. So the way of the cross is to love one another graciously as Christ has loved us, not on a performance basis. Christ didn't love us because we deserved it. He didn't didn't love us because we were performing well enough and keeping the law well enough and being good enough. No, we know that's not the case. He loved us when we were dead in transgressions and sins. So how did Christ receive us? He forgave us. He justified us by his grace and his love, his cross. And so if we map that onto marriage, it says this. If we are not loving graciously, then we are by definition loving manipulatively or controlling. The relationship becomes something twisted because loving in a manipulative way is loving to get something from someone, not loving to give to them. And someone, you and I always are able to tell eventually whether someone is loving us in a manipulative way or whether that so-called love is really Christ-like love, whether it's self-giving love. You know, you might get a phone call from someone who's got a great deal for you, and they're just, they just want you to get this deal, but you know it's a sales call, and they really don't have your best interest at heart. Well, that one is obvious, right? It's more difficult in marriage whether that person is truly seeking the other's well-being or whether it's ultimately focused on self. And really, it's a fundamental difference between a manipulative mindset focused on self or a ministry mindset, which is a Christ-centered mindset, focused on the other's well-being. And the goal as Christians in our marriages and in all our relationships is certainly is to be considered in all our relationships, is to be more and more Christ-like, less and less self-centered and manipulative and controlling, and more and more giving as Christ has given himself to us. This is the kind of love that also graciously forgives. It's quick to confess failure and sin. In other words, when we are loving graciously, it's coming from a humble spirit. And this is no small thing. The natural tendency for all of us, and it especially is exposed in marriage, which is so demanding, is to see ourselves in the right, or at least to see ourselves less in the wrong, we might say. I tell couples uh, in getting married about the 60-40 principle in marriage, and that's whenever there's a conflict or a fight, all of us tend to think, well, I'm 60% right, and he or she is only 40%. And they're thinking the opposite, right? So 
Who should humble himself or herself first? Well, probably the one that sinned more, right? But we always think it's the other. True humility, though, points the finger to ourselves first and says, even if I'm only 5% wrong, I want to be first in humbling myself. That's what it means to love graciously. And the cross of Christ, you see, comes into our lives and it shatters our self-righteousness. Self-righteousness cannot breathe the air of the cross of Jesus Christ. It dies. And really, the way of the cross is a lifelong pathway of putting to death sinful self, sinful self-righteousness, sinful self-serving, and instead being focused on the glory and the beauty of Christ so that it overflows to those around us. It's as we are humbled by the gospel and lifted up by Christ that we are empowered more and more to love others in the same way. Loving each other is to be love that is gracious as Christ has received us. Fourth, this aspect is serving one another in the daily routine of life. Serving one another in the daily routine of life. The Bible says a lot about serving one another in love. And you think about, I was thinking yesterday about all the ways people in our church were serving others in love. There were people putting mulch out all around the church yesterday. There were people taking the refugees to the Washington Zoo out of love for them. There were youth workers taking, I know the girls of the youth group had an activity yesterday. I, was just, I got home, I thought, boy, there's so much going on in this church. Everybody's serving in so many ways. What a beautiful picture of how the church is called to serve one another in love. But how much is that true for marriage? It's often said, marriage is a big adjustment, and it is. But then they add, but children are a bigger adjustment. And when I think of this point of serving one another in the daily routine of life, I immediately think of couples with preschool children at home, children that they're raising and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And many of them are feeling like, boy, I never knew what service was until kids came along. Because then, you know, there were the waking up in the middle of the night and changing diapers and feeding and caring and all these things. Such selfless, sacrificial service is required. But it's not only when children are young. There's selfless service required in all of marriage. Think of The example at the other extreme of a couple caring for one another, or maybe one particularly caring for the other at the final end of life or in the final years of life. A beautiful picture of the mature, self-sacrificial love. I think of my mom, especially in my dad's last year of life. He He had lost his leg in World War II, and he had lived with a prosthetic leg for 65 years And in that final year of his life, even when he was still at home before he was hospitalized, I know my mom had to put his leg on him and take his leg off him and put his shoes on him and things like that. Just those daily kinds of self-sacrificial actions. It's a testimony. So it's not like when the kids are grown, suddenly the self-sacrifice ends. No, it's there in many other ways. There are a thousand ways to reflect on this calling of the way of the cross of serving one another in a Christ-like way in marriage. Fifth, persevering in faith in God's wise providence, whatever suffering may befall. Let me say that one again. 
The way of the cross in marriage means persevering in faith in God's wise providence, whatever suffering may befall your marriage. Now, this whole theological point may not seem immediately connected to the way of the cross, but think of it this way. God is sovereign over our lives. God is sovereign over our marriages. In His wisdom, He fatherly and wisely directs our path. And always, He gives His people some degree of suffering. Everyone in this room has suffering in their their lives. Maybe it's not real intense right now. There are seasons, certainly, of that. There are ups and downs. But every person has that to some degree, and every marriage has suffering to some degree. But you do not know in marriage what suffering you may face. And so I love the way the vows say that you're going to be true to one another in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, uh, for better or for worse. Those are all talking about this idea of God's providence in our lives, and you don't know what tomorrow may bring. That's going to be the context for glorifying God in your marriage by going the way of the cross, whatever suffering He brings. We have members of our church who have lost a child in their marriage. Certainly, things like miscarriages, childlessness, uh, a, a rebellious child, financial suffering, these kinds of things. I always like the example of B.B. Warfield, a great theologian who taught at Old Princeton. Um, and the story goes of, of he and his young wife getting married and going over to Europe for their honeymoon and some kind of an accident occurring I think it may be that she was struck by lightning in some way, but in any case, she was an invalid for life after that honeymoon. And for the rest of his teaching career at Princeton, he could not be away from her side because of the need to care for her for more than a few hours at a time. So he would teach a class and come back, and then he would go and do his work. And for the rest of her life, he cared for her in that way. What an example of persevering in faith in God's wise providence in marriage whatever the suffering might be. Number six, it also means loving each other with a view to ultimate glorification. Loving each other with a view to ultimate glorification. That beautiful picture in Ephesians 5 of Christ loving the church to present her to himself as a glorious church without wrinkle or blemish or anything. So husbands ought to love their wives. First Peter 3 7 adds, as being heirs together of the grace of life. So really, the exhortation is to keep in mind the final destination, the consummation, the glorious revealing of the sons of God. Jesus loved us. Jesus loved the church and loves the church with our ultimate sanctification and glorification in view. And so, what does that mean in marriage? It means that we are motivated to do something higher than just live for the here and now. We live with a view to a higher destiny, to the glory that is to come, to the final glorification of our spouse. And the faithfulness and the sacrifice and the serving and the loving all have a final and a glorious consummation at the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a glorious picture that is where we celebrate Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and the glorification of his bride, the church. And so just as in 1 John, when 
John talks about we will see him face to face. And then he says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. The Apostle John is essentially saying, when you keep in view the fact that you are going to see Jesus face to face, and he's going to glorify you, if you have that hope in view and in mind, then you will pursue holiness unto the glory of God in your life. Well, we could make that more specific and apply it to marriage and say, if you keep in view the fact that your spouse is going to one day be glorified by Jesus Christ, then that should be a strong and powerful motivation to love as Christ has loved you, to seek that spouse's well-being. Do you see how powerful that motivation is? To love each other with a view to ultimate glorification. And then finally, it means seeking God's glory even in an unhappy or difficult marriage. Now, we're going to talk next week about the biblical grounds for divorce and seek to understand what Scripture says about divorce and remarriage and are there reasons and times for that, or we're going to argue that there are two biblical reasons for that. But this point is saying, okay, short of that, you are called to seek to glorify God even in what may be a very difficult or unhappy marriage. Now, every marriage takes, takes work. Every marriage has sin in it, but some marriages are very difficult. Some, by comparison, are relatively happy marriages, and we hope that's the case for many marriages in our church. And the reasons vary as to why a marriage could be difficult. It could be that the people, the husband and wife, are very different in their outlook on life and their personality. It may be because of some very deep suffering childlessness. I mentioned that earlier. That can be a great trial in a marriage. It can be a great trial to have a child who's very difficult to raise. I know of individuals um, who face that in different ways. It may be because of one or the other of the spouses from a deeply disadvantaged background in terms of their own upbringing. It may be in terms of long-term chronic financial hardship and unemployment, something like that, that puts great stress on a marriage, or chronic ill health. There are lots of reasons why a marriage might find it very difficult. But whatever the reason might be, I want to encourage you along these lines as we conclude with this last point. And that is, if you are in a difficult marriage, please do not lose sight of the ultimate goal of glorifying God in your marriage. You see, there are higher goals. There is a higher goal than self-interest. There is a higher goal than mere happiness in marriage, which is a good thing. But the higher goal is living for the glory of God. Jesus Christ never got married. Jesus Christ did not have the option to get married. He was called to lay down his life. There was a higher will of God to live for. He lived for the glory of God. There are many who have sacrificed many aspects of happiness in life because of the higher goal of the glory of God. So no matter how you got into an unhappy marriage, the point is, what are you going to do in that unhappy marriage? Certainly work for the marriage to be improved, but even if it doesn't seem to get that good, the higher goal of the glory of God must be kept in view. Barbara Heist thought, apparently, it best to pursue an alternative life. 
to leave her husband, her two kids. And again, I don't know the reasons why. I can only speculate. I do know that many, many people do that kind of thing in a less mysterious way in our society, and they're doing it out of seeking their own interest. That is not to be the case for Christians. Christians are called to live for God's glory. And really, we are on this earth for a very short time. Very soon, Jesus Christ is going to return. Whether it's still a thousand years off, it's going to be very, ter- very soon in terms of eternity and in our lives, which are but a vapor. Can't we live for God's glory by the power of God and glorify him in our marriages now? May it be so for each one of us who are married And may it serve to honor him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the incredible love of Christ, the love that transforms us, the love that carries us, the love that brings us, love that brings us through trials and tribulations and sufferings of all kinds and ultimately brings us to glory. We want to know that love more deeply now, that we might be changed by it, whether it's for those who are married in our midst here or will one day be married, whether it's for singles and are, who are in relationships with others seeking to be faithful in their jobs, in their homes, in their relationships, neighborhoods, in children and parents, whatever, wherever it is that you have placed us, Father, please give us grace to seek to go the way of the cross daily and so bring glory to Jesus our Lord. We ask in his name. Amen.